All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Tonight, our topic is the United States in prophecy, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, Lord, we thank you for this evening and the opportunity to come together. And Lord, we are praying that the Holy Spirit is going to guide our hearts and minds, that you're going to give us wisdom, you're going to give us understanding. And Lord, You're going to help us to recognize the truth when we hear it. And we are praying that when we are done tonight, we will have a greater understanding of what You are expecting from us and desiring from us. And so Lord, we're counting on You that uh, You will guide us into all truth and that knowing the truth, we will be set free. We're praying and asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well tonight we are going to go straight to the Bible, so turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. And you'll remember that we've looked at this chapter quite a bit already, but we're going to do a little bit of a review and then we're going to look at some new stuff tonight. We're going to start in verse 1 and 2 and we're going to look at this first beast of Revelation. But the thing that I want to remind you of is that most people forget that there are two beasts that are talked about in Revelation 13, and we're going to talk about both of those tonight. And so let's look at Revelation 13, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so here we see this first beast of Revelation 13. And you'll remember that we identified this first beast as the Antichrist, and we uh, more specifically identified this beast as Papal Rome. But I want to remind you of something that we read in Daniel chapter 7. And that was where Daniel had that vision of those four beasts coming up out of the sea. And the first one looked like a lion. The second one looked like a bear. The third one looked like a leopard. And then the fourth was that great and dreadful beast. And you'll remember that there were four horns on that dreadful beast, and then there was another horn, a little horn, that came up among them, right? And we identified that little horn as the Antichrist as well, and as that papal power. But I want you to imagine that you are standing in the place of that fourth beast, and that little horn on that fourth beast, and you're looking backward. What are you going to see? You're going to see a leopard and a bear, and a lion, right? You're seeing history in reverse as you're looking backwards. And that's why in verse 2 here, we saw this beast which looked like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth were like the mouth of a lion. Because every time you have a nation that conquers another nation, there's going to be a residue, or there's going to be a little bit from that previous nation that's going to be carried into your nation, right? And so we see this beast, and he has all of the remnants of all of those previous empires that were conquered. That's why it's saying that he looks like a leopard and has the feet of a bear and has the mouth of a lion. Now look with me in verse 3. 
And let's continue reading here. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for how long? For 42 months, and you'll remember that we looked at a biblical month as being 30 days, and 42 times 30 equals 1,260 days, and we saw that a day in Bible prophecy equals a year. And so we had 1,260 years of this papal reign. And then we go down to verse 6, and it says, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And so here we see that this is a blaspheming power. And then you go to verse 7 and 8, and it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so here we see that this is a persecuting power. And here is just a picture of that papal Rome and the power that they had and the things that they did during that reign. Now, the one thing that we haven't found out yet is how the world is going to worship the beast. And we're going to get into that on Saturday at noon. And so I hope that you'll be here. You won't want to miss that. But notice what it says in verse 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. And he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And so here we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we see this picture of papal Rome, and it speaks about this power that it would receive a mortal wound or a deadly wound, and that fatal wound was received at the end of that 1,260 years, and that was when uh, Napoleon sent his general Berthier in to take the Pope captive and essentially snuffed out the civil power of the papacy. And if you look through historical documents, you will see that papal Rome, for all intents and purposes, was dead as a result of this. The Pope still had ecclesiastical power. He still had precedence over the church. But as far as political power, the papacy received that mortal wound in 1798 and it says there in revelation 13 verse 10 he who leads into captivity must go into captivity and so here we see the papacy the one who was leading many of the saints of god into captivity now he himself is being taken captive and the one who was calling for many people to be killed by the sword now he himself is being killed by the sword the people that he was calling for were literally killed, but now he's spiritually killed, right? Because now the political power is being taken away and he's being killed by the Word of God, right? The sword. And the Bible is in printing and people are reading the Bible for themselves and they're seeing the things that the church are teaching are wrong. And now he receives that deadly wound. And so we come to an end of Revelation 13, verse 10, and it talks about that reign of that beast all the way down to the end of that 1260-year period, all the way to 1798, and then he receives that deadly wound. 
And then we go to Revelation 13, verse 11, and it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute and remind you of something that I said on the first night. You'll remember that I said one of the keys to looking and understanding Revelation was that not all things are chronological in the book of Revelation, right? You remember me saying that? We had to use that pan and zoom principle. But when I said not everything is chronological, I meant that there were some things that are. Right? In this particular case, we have these things happening chronologically. We see the end of that papal power at the end of 1798, and John says, then I saw another beast coming up. And so this one is coming up right at the end of the of the papacy power, now we see this second beast rising up out of the earth. And it says something very interesting here. It says, first of all, that first beast came up out of where? Revelation 13, verse 1. The first beast came up out of the sea. And you'll remember that we read in Revelation 17, verse 15, that water in Bible prophecy represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Right? And so we see these beasts coming up out of the water, and uh, that represents a nation rising up in a richly, densely populated area. And so when we see these four beasts coming up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7, We see Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and it's just one nation conquering the next nation, right? And so we see that they had to conquer an already existing civilization. But now in Revelation 13, verse 11, we see this second beast, and he is coming up out of the earth, and it is a lamb-like beast. And we know that if the sea represents a richly, densely populated area, then the earth would be the opposite of that. It would be a relatively unpopulated area. But we see, first of all, that this lamb-like beast, who is also known as the false prophet, he comes up into power around 1798. And that is at the end of that papal reign. Then we see that he would come up out of a relatively unpopulated area. And so this is not a conquest of other nations like in the old world, but this is an unpopulated area. And we also learned that this is a lamb-like beast that has two horns, and those two horns are like what? What does it say there in Revelation 13 verse 11? He had two horns like a like a lamb. That's right. Now, remind me, in the Bible, who is a lamb symbolic of? Jesus Christ. That's right. And so this is some sort of a power that has two horns like a lamb. Now, I want to show you something here that's, I think, very significant. If you go back to Revelation 13, verse 1, you'll see that this first beast who rises up out of the sea, has seven heads and ten horns, and what are on his horns? Ten crowns, that's right. And then if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, and you see the dragon, 
you see that he has seven heads and ten horns. And what are on his horns? Ten crowns. That's right. And now when you come to Revelation 13 verse 11 and you see the second beast, he has two horns and what are on his horns? There's, there's nothing there, is there? It says that he has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. There are no crowns. And so the first beast has ten crowns. The, the dragon has ten crowns. But this second beast, also known as the false prophets, he has no crowns. Now crowns represent a monarchy, don't they? Crowns represent kingly authority. Whether a king in the case of a power of, of, of political power or in the case of the Pope, a religious power. Remember we saw that picture of the Caesars giving their crown to the Pope? Okay, so a monarch or a kingly authority in either case. And so this power that is coming up in, in Revelation 13.11, this second beast, he's looking peace-like, he's looking lamb-like, Christ-like, Christian-like, but he would come up with no kingly authority. Right? It would be a government of the people and by the people and for the people. And the Bible says that it would be a Christ-like division of power. We have two horns there that have no crown on them. So there's no kingly authority that would happen. And so this power comes up around 1798, arises in a relatively unpopulated area, and has a division of power, and he has no crown of authority. And then when you go to Revelation 13, verse 12, look at that. It says that he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You see that in verse 12? Now this is some very serious influence, isn't it? He exercises all of the authority of the first beast, and he causes all of the earth to worship the beast. And so this must be a worldwide power. If you are going to exert that kind of influence on the entire world, it has to be a worldwide influence. And so this power grows to a position of universal power and influence. Friends, here is a power that arises at the conclusion of the 1260 year reign of the papacy after 1798. It grows up in a sparsely unpopulated area where he didn't have to conquer any uh, existing nations like in the old world. It would have no kingly authority, a government without a king, and a church without a pope, but rather of the people, by the people, and for the people. And it would be a nation that would gain worldwide influence. Now friends, there is no nation in the world that fits that description except the United States of America. Now, let me just say this. You look at verse 11 again. He says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. If you go back to the original manuscript in the original Greek text, that phrase coming up is translated from the Greek word anabino, which means to ascend 
or rise or grow or spring up. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, it uses the exact same word when it's talking about these thorns that grow up or spring up, right? And so this is not talking about some nation that instantly is a world superpower. It's not something that happens automatically, but this nation has to grow up. It's not a superpower all at one time, but it grows slowly into a world superpower. And I believe that's exactly what we see in the United States. Notice what G.A. Townsend said in a book called The New World Compared with the Old on page 635. He said, The mystery of her coming forth from vacancy, he's talking about the United States, was like a silent seed. We grew into an empire. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but I've thought about this a lot. How could it be that the Bible would talk about the superpowers of the world, world-ruling empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. How could it talk about all those world superpowers and not talk about the world superpower at the end of time? Right? But we have to remember too that the Bible only talks about those superpowers as they relate to God's people. Okay? Now, I want to take you to Revelation chapter 12, and I want to show you here the United States in prophecy from yet a little bit different angle. Notice what it says in Revelation 12, verse 13 and 14. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so here we see that when the devil was cast to the earth, that he immediately went at persecuting God's people. And uh, we saw that with Adam and Eve, and it just continued on. And he was right there ready to kill Christ as soon as he was born, right? And the church that began through Christ and then was developed through the apostles, he was going after the church. He was persecuting and trying to take out God's people. But the Bible says that the church, which is represented by this woman, was given wings of an eagle that she could escape this persecution, and she flies into the wilderness. And a wilderness is just an unpopulated area, right? And we see that all throughout the Dark Ages. That's exactly what happened as the Roman papacy was trying to persecute God's people. They were fleeing. They were going into hiding. The Waldensians went up into the Swiss Alps. The Christians, there were many different groups that were going into hiding to try and avoid this persecution. And notice what it says in verse 15. Still in Revelation 12. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that He might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now we already know that from Bible prophecy that water represents large groups of people, right? So if you have a large group of people who are going after God's people, after His church, what do you have? 
persecution, right? You have the armies of the Roman papacy coming after God's people and trying to snuff them out. Trying to take them out and trying to kill the church. And so we see this persecution that is going on. Now look at verse 16. And notice what it says. It says, but the earth did what? The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. The earth helped the woman. Now, remind me, where did that second beast come up out of? Out of the earth, that's right. That beast in Revelation 13, 11 came up out of the earth. The earth is what helped the woman. So the church was trying to flee from the persecution in western Rome and they were fleeing the tyranny of the old world that would not allow them to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And that brought them, guess where? To America. But if you read through the history of America, you'll discover that when they first got here, that they began to engage in the exact same practices of the old world that they had come from. The persecuted became the persecutors. Let me give you just a small example of this. When the very first pilgrims came to America, the first thing they did was build a church. And then they built their homes around it. But if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you didn't get your weekly allotment of food. And so they began to persecute their own people. And seeing that, the forefathers recognized that that was a problem. But our forefathers came to America and they landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts on December 26th of 1620. And the forefathers of our country who drafted the Declaration of Independence said that we cannot allow this to happen here in America, what happened in the old country. And so... They decided we are going to found this country on the freedom of religion. We didn't come to America to repeat the mistakes of the old world. And so they established this country on these principles beginning with the Declaration of Independence where Jefferson's preamble said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal And they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is what this country was founded on. And then the Constitution followed in 1789 and the Bill of Rights in 1791 and the First Amendment of the United States Constitution said this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble. And why did they put that in there as the first amendment to the Constitution? I'll tell you why. Because they had come from a place where the church ruled the state and what always happens when the church is in charge of the state, its persecution always follows. And they were coming from a place where that was the case, and they said, no, we are not going to allow that to happen here. Now, I know that we are all Christians here. 
And I know that we have to give the rights to all people to believe according to the dictates of their own conscience, right? But if you don't, you are not going to make anyone a Christian by force. And the papacy proved that in the Dark Ages. You cannot force someone to believe what you think they should believe. George Washington said it this way, Every man conducting himself as a good citizen, being accountable to God for his religious opinions, ought to be protected in worshiping the deity according to the dictates of his own good conscience. Friends, are we going to be held accountable for our religious beliefs? Absolutely. We're going to be held accountable by God. But not by the state. Right? The government has no right to dictate what you and I should believe. I'd like for you to look with me at a perfect example of how Jesus lays this out for us. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. That's going to be page 1168 in your seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so they say to Jesus, Should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, Yes. Give unto Caesar that is what Caesar's. But give unto God that which belongs to God. In other words, Caesar or the government has a right to create and enforce laws related to civil rights and the protection of its citizens. But the government has no right to require that which belongs to God. And that includes the conscience, right? Your thinking, your believing. They have no right to legislate that. And our religious opinions and practices, so long as they don't cross the line of civil rights and protections, are not the jurisdiction of the civil law. Sure, if your religious practice leads you to steal from your neighbor or leads you to sacrifice your children, then the civil law which provides protection to its citizens and their property has jurisdiction over you. But if your religious practices, no matter how bizarre or unbiblical they may be, if you are not violating the rights of someone else or their property, the government has no right to create a law that governs your convictions. In other words, the Christian founders of this country who saw the results of having an official state religion believed that the only Christian way to form a government was to protect the conscience of the people and leave the accountability for that to God on the day of judgment. Amen? Notice what Benjamin Franklin once said. 
He said, when a religion is good, I conceive that it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that it professors are obliged to call for the help of the civil power, tis a sign, I apprehend, of its being a bad one. Right? In other words, Franklin is saying, if your religion is so bankrupt of the power of God that you have to go to the state and have it legislate and enforce what you believe, that is a bad religion. Right? Remember that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of force. Jesus is likened to a shepherd who gently draws people to Himself by love. He likened the kingdom of God as a mustard seed that grows up into a great big tree. In other words, God works by planting the seeds of truth and love in people's hearts and He lets them grow up in that truth and love for Him. Amen? It is Satan who works by force and deception in order to gain followers because when the veil is pulled back, there's really nothing to attract us to Him. Remember that a man forced against his will is of the same opinion still. You can't force someone to love God. You can't force them to serve God. Because if you try to, they will do it out of fear or they will do it out of force and not out of an appreciation for His character and His love and the truth. But it wasn't that way in the old world. Right? It was called heresy if you didn't believe what the church said you had to believe. And if you didn't believe what the state religion said, It was the state that came after you. Right? That you were punished by state law. That was the nature of the first beast of Revelation 13. Remember the picture that we saw in Revelation 17. Who was on top of who? It was the woman or the church on top of the beast which represents a civil law or a civil power. Right? An inevitable conclusion every time that you have the church in charge of the state is persecution follows. But the Bible says that this power in Revelation 13.11, we're talking about this lamb-like beast. He has two horns like a lamb. In other words, it was founded on Christian principle. It was founded on a separation. Two horns... One representing church and the other representing state, right? But neither of them has a crown. And so it is a church without a pope. That's Protestantism. And it was a government without a king. That's republicanism, right? We are a republic. And that's how God intended it to be. But there's one problem with the prophecy. Did you see it? Look at Revelation 13, verse 11 again. It says that this beast was going to come up out of the earth. He was going to have two horns like a lamb, but what? He was going to speak like a dragon. Prophecy says that he speaks like a dragon. Revelation 13, 11. Now let me ask you a question. 
How does a nation speak? Well, we often have times when the President of the United States comes on national television and he speaks to the American people, right? But is that how a nation speaks? I don't think so because all you have to do is go over and turn off your TV, right? And you can turn that off. No, a nation speaks through its legislation. That's how a nation speaks. And I want to show you this. Look with me at Revelation 13. Look at verse 12 through 14 again. It says, And he exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now, I want you to notice there whose authority was he exercising? This is the second beast. This is the false prophet. This is the United States, right? Exercising the authority of the first beast who is the Antichrist, who is Papal Rome, right? And where did the first beast get his authority from? From the dragon. That's right. Now that's how this second beast begins to speak like a dragon. Because he speaks very similarly to the first beast. In fact, the Bible says in verse 14 that he deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image to the beast. Isn't that what it says there? Now, what is an image? It's a likeness, right? In other words, here we find that just as the papacy was formed by losing their spiritual power by compromising with the world and then turning to the state to enforce their teachings, it's telling us that's the exact same thing that's going to happen with the second beast. The Christians in the United States of America losing their power to convict people of sin and to lead them into a relationship with Christ are going to seek the civil power to enforce their beliefs so that people supposedly turn to God, right? Protestantism was built on the separation of church and state. But there would begin to be this voice of the dragon the image of the beast would be this uniting once again of church and state just like in the old world. And that's what it says in verse 15. It says that He was granted to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. What's that sound like? That sounds like the same thing that happened in the old world, doesn't it? The same thing that happened in the dark ages. That's what it is. That's persecution. Enforcing its beliefs to those that are underneath it. Verse 16 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell. This is an economic sanction that is given to those who do not take the mark of the beast, right? Or the number of his name. This is legislation. This is the government 
forcing the people to believe what they say you should believe. Friends, the wall of separation between church and state is coming down. And I believe that this prophecy is very clearly explaining this to us. Now, some of you may think, no, that's not true. But I want to show you something that I think points to another story. The current Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court is John Roberts. But the one before him was William Rehnquist. And notice what he said. The wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on bad history. It should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. Now you might say that is constitutionally impossible. The Constitution says there has to be a separation of church and state. But friends, this country is changing. In 1980, Jerry Falwell, the head of the moral majority in their newspaper, he said this, the phrase separation of church and state is not found in the Constitution. And the misuse of the phrase leads to all sorts of trouble, such as trying to keep godly principles out of legislation. The free exercise clause means that the government is powerless to be involved in the regulation of belief or church activities. It does not mean that our beliefs cannot be legislated. Wipe the phrase separation of church and state out of your vocabulary. Now friends, I want to tell you why this is scary. There are many honest Christians in the world today that believe the union of church and state was all about the government telling the church what they could believe. But that is exactly opposite of what the Bible tells us. Remember, who was riding on who in Revelation 17? It was the church riding on the state, controlling the state, telling the state what to do, right? And every time you have a union of church and state, you have the church dictating what we should believe. It's never been the other way around. Look in the time of Christ. How was it that Christ was killed? It was by the Jews calling on the state to punish Christ, right? It was the only way that they could get rid of Him. And all of these people came together. Those who normally didn't like each other. Those that normally didn't work together. You had the Herodians. You had Pilate. You had Herod. You had the Jews. The Sadducees. The Pharisees. You had the whole gang come together. And it is exactly opposite of what Jerry Falwell is saying. Now, let me explain to you what's happening here. There are many Christian leaders in America who are looking at the decline of morality in Western society. And they believe that the reason is that the Christians have not been asserting their beliefs enough in the public arena. Now, I can sympathize with the fact that there is a decline in morality in America. Amen? That is a fact. But Christians are not made by legislation. You cannot force someone to believe something that they don't want to believe. They are made Christians by the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Never forget that. Remember, friends, Christ never said that we were going to be able to change the world. In fact, He said the world will hate you. But rather, He is calling Christians to come out of the world. Liberty Magazine in May of 1980 said this, If Christians unite, we can do anything. We can pass any law or any amendment. And that's exactly what we intend to do. You ever heard of the Christian Coalition? I want to read to you something I took directly off of their website. They said, The Christian Coalition offers people of faith the vehicle to be actively involved in impacting the issues they care about from the county courthouse to the halls of Congress. The Coalition is a political organization made up of pro-family Americans who care deeply about ensuring that government serves to strengthen and preserve rather than threaten our families and our values. That sounds like a good reason, doesn't it? To that end, we work continuously to identify, educate, and mobilize Christians for effective political action. Let me read those last three words again. Effective political action. That's the purpose of the Christian coalition, right? And so here is this group of Christians who say, you know, we're seeing this moral decline in America. And the answer to that decline is to mobilize Christians for what? For preaching of the Gospel? No. For effective political action. And so what do they do? They distribute thousands and thousands of voter guides to the churches to tell you who you should vote for. Right? Now let me ask you a question. Was Rome corrupt in the days of Jesus? Absolutely. And what was Jesus' solution to that? To picket around the courthouse? No. Jesus believed that the best method was to change one heart at a time with the Gospel message. Now, I perfectly understand that these issues of morality in the world are an issue. And I believe that the intentions of these Christians are very noble. Right? But they have forgotten their history. And you know the saying, don't you? If you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. This is out of uh, Newsweek magazine, an article of Prayer and Payback in 2004. It says, The Moral Majority Coalition has been launched. The group's central premise is to utilize the momentum of the November 2nd elections to maintain an evangelical revolution of voters who will continue to go to the polls and vote Christian. Why? Because if you want to change the world... You've got to get into the political arena. Right? That's really what they're saying. If you want to change the world, it's not about preaching the Gospel. It's about getting into the political arena. Time Magazine in 2005, in an article about evangelicals in America, said, what does Bush owe the religious right? They helped re-elect the president and Christian conservatives want payback. In other words, they're saying, hey, Mr. President, we got you in office, and now we want you to come up with some legislation that is going to support our Christian values. 
Now, friends, I don't have a problem with supporting morality. Right? That's a good thing. And I'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't go and vote. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with politics per se. But what I am saying is that if you want to change the world, you don't do it through the political agenda. Amen? That opens the door and heads us right back to where we were in the dark ages. Anybody ever heard of James Dobson? Dr. James Dobson, one of the most influential Christian leaders in our country, has stepped down from focus on the family to move into the political arena. That was written in a U.S. news article in 2005. It goes on to say, before the November 2004 election, James Dobson stepped down from the presidency on focus on the family. Dobson, for his part, is ready to play hardball. Having already sent letters to 1.2 million supporters in which he threatens to challenge Democratic senators up for re-election in 2006 if they filibuster Bush's conservative judicial nominees. Although much of Dobson's political power derives from his ability to connect with grassroots, he is more plugged into Washington than he lets on. He may not be an insider, but he can shut down the phone lines in Congress. You see, friends, as long as there are people in America who have an influence in this country, the politicians tend to do what is expedient. I don't think that it matters whether you're talking Democrats or Republicans. I've seen it myself. I've seen John Kerry. I've seen President Obama when he was in office. They would talk to different groups of people and say different things to different groups depending on what they thought they wanted to hear. And then you remember September 11, 2001? As soon as those two planes hit those towers in New York City, there was a grassroots feeling in America that we need to do something. That we needed to go to war, right? And you have Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle who normally wouldn't vote for war, but because the American people were calling for that, they came together in a non-partisan way and we went to war. But then you'll remember what happened after that, right? When the public opinion changed, all of a sudden the Democrats come out and say, oh, we shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake, right? Why? Because public opinion had changed. And that's really what this statement is saying, that we have enough people, that we have enough public opinion, and we want payback. We want to see what you're going to do to address the Christian agenda. Right? And I just want you to notice that it's not the leaders themselves, but it's the people who are influencing the leaders, right? Now, this may seem noble on the surface. The, the agenda may begin with something like prayer in school, right? And I think that's a good thing. But you can't legislate and tell everybody they have to pray to one God. Because who is that God going to be? You can't tell people that they have to pray to a certain one. We have to give them the right to choose for themselves who they are going to follow. Amen? If you want your children and grandchildren to grow up in a Christian environment, 
then send them to a Christian school. Right? The Bible says that there is going to be an image that is going to be set up. And whose power does He exercise? Revelation 13.12 tells us, And He, that is the second beast, exercises all the power of the first beast of papal Rome. And so this power is going to be established at the end of time. That mortal wound of the first beast has been healed. And it is going to have a big part to play in influence in these last days. And I want to talk about that for a moment. You'll remember, we talked about this already. On January 10th, 1984, the first U.S. ambassador to the Vatican, William Wilson, was appointed. There's a very interesting book that came out quite a while back by Malachi Martin called The Keys of This Blood. And this describes the universal purpose of the papacy. And I'd like you to notice what he says in that book. He says, willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holes-barred, three-way global competition. And I'm going to stop right there and I'll read the rest of that in a minute. But I want, you, I want to point out to you that that three-way global competition that he was talking about is Catholicism, capitalism, and communism. Now we know what Catholicism is, right? That's the teachings of the Catholic Church. And we know what capitalism is. America is capitalistic. And then there's communism, right? Well, he goes on to say, most of us are not competitors, however. We are the stakes. For the competition is about who will establish the first one world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. Time Magazine in uh, 2001 wrote this article called The Holy Alliance. And in it, it shows how Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist Poland's solidarity movement in hastening the demise of communism. Reagan said in that article, one of the earliest goals of his presidency was to recognize the Vatican as a state and make them an ally. This was one of the greatest secret alliances of all time. Reagan and the Pope agreed to undertake a clandestine campaign to hasten the dissolution of the communist empire. Step by reluctant step, the Soviets and the communist government of Poland bowed to the moral, economic, and political pressure of the Pope and the President of the United States. And communism was dismantled. And today that three-fold power that Malachi Martin was talking about was two. The first beast, the Antichrist, the papal power, and the second beast, the false prophet, the United States. Today it is two, according to the Bible. Notice this from Ecclesiastical Megalomania by Dr. John Robbins. He says, What the Roman church state accomplished on a small scale during the Middle Age is what it desires to achieve on a global scale in the coming millennium. That's pretty scary. 
goes on to say, the Roman church state in the 20th century, however, is an institution recovering from a mortal wound. If and when it regains its full power and authority, it will impose a regime more sinister than any the planet has ever seen. Now this may sound far-fetched to you, but I believe the workings are already in progress for this to take place. Do you remember the time in Christ when the Jews cried out, we have one king only, King Caesar, right? They were willing to do anything to come together in unity. The Herodians, Herod, Pilate, the Jews, they all came together unified with the same goal. They accomplished that goal through that unity. Unity is not always a good thing. We talked about this the other night, didn't we? Unity can be a very awful thing when you are not united on the truth. Revelation 13, verse 12 says it this way, And He causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And so Protestant America is going to cause the earth to worship the first beast. And how does that happen? Well, I'm going to talk about that on Saturday at noon. And so you're going to want to be here for that. But let me just say this. The evangelicals in America and the Catholics in recent history have been taking many strides to come together. The Associated Press on November 17, 2004 said this, the nation's Roman Catholic bishops voted Wednesday to join a new alliance that would be the broadest Christian group ever formed in the United States, linking America's evangelicals and Catholics in an ecumenical organization for the first time. Ecumenical is just a bringing together of all of the churches. Their desire is to bring all of the Protestant churches back under the umbrella of the Catholic Church. Now, I understand that that may sound like a good thing on the, on the surface, right? We need to put aside our differences. But I want you to think about that for a moment. How many of you have ever heard of the Augsburg Confession? Augsburg Confession? Yep, that was the Magna Carta of Protestantism. It was after Martin Luther gave his defense of the problems and the abuses of Rome and the persecution that was going on. And there were many people in the world that were seeing that as well. And they all came together in Augsburg, Germany. And they wrote out basically an early confession of faith among Protestants. And they gave all of the reasons why they were protesting the various Catholic abuses and indulgences and the persecution that was going on. And there were very real reasons that they were protesting. And I believe those reasons are still valid today. I think that it's very dangerous to pray to saints. I think it's very dangerous to confess to a human priest rather than to Jesus Christ Himself. I think that it's very dangerous to have a system of salvation that is based on works rather than on faith in Jesus Christ. I think that it's very dangerous to pay for indulgences as if you can buy your forgiveness and way into heaven. I think those things are very dangerous. I thought they were dangerous the first time I read them. I think they're still dangerous. And yet in 1999, 
just 18 years ago, on October 31st, what day did I say? October 31st, they came together. And I'm going to read to you in a minute what they did. But I want to remind you that we are just a few days from October 31st. And that is the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. And I don't know about you, but I'm watching to see what the papacy is going to do. But let me read to you what happened on October 31st, 1999. This is according to the Washington Post. Notice what they say. The Augsburg Confession was written 482 years before this happened. Notice what they say. Today the heirs of that acrimony, an acrimony is a sharp dispute, right? Or, or a, uh, a bitter dispute. Today the heirs of that acrimony and that fracture, the leaders of the modern Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches signed a document that officially settles the central argument about the nature of faith that Luther provoked. The agreement declares in effect that it was all just a misunderstanding. Now friends, I think it's good that we come together after a misunderstanding. But millions of people being burned at the stake is not a simple misunderstanding. Right? It was more than simple misunderstanding. There were clear, distinct differences. We're not talking about insignificant things here. We're talking about a person's salvation. And we have come to a point in America where people are forgetting their history and this image is being formed to this beast. That mortal wound has been healed. Notice what Christian Magazine said in May 17, 2005. It says, do Protestants need the papacy? At one point in history to be a Protestant was explicitly or tacitly to will an end to the papacy. Now that article goes on. I'm going to read the rest of it in a minute. But I just want to say, I want to go on record right now as saying that I will an end to the papacy. Now please hear what I said. I did not say I will an end to Catholics. Right? I think that there are some godly men and women in the Catholic Church that are living up to all the light that they have and God is going to save them. I'm not talking about individual Catholics. I'm talking about a corrupt religious system that I will an end to. Now notice what it goes on to say. I think many Protestants can now confess that that was a mistaken view. Both the church and the world would sorely lack a witness if there was no papacy. If being a Protestant means willing the end of the papacy, then I find myself no longer capable of willing such an act. Friends, the world is changing. And things are coming together. Notice what Time Magazine said, March 21st, 2005. This was a story about Mary. And I don't know if you can read the subtitle here, but it says, Catholics have long revered her but now Protestants are finding their own reasons to celebrate the mother of Jesus. And then it has this article in there. And and notice what it says. This is the Reformation in reverse. It's simply profoundly unbiblical and it leads to the worst excesses of Marian devotion. Friends, do we see what's happening in the world today? 
Protestants, for the sake of unity, are laying aside fundamental biblical truths and they're saying, okay, well maybe we don't worship Mary, but let's look at the benefits of Mary and find a way that we can come together. Right? I believe that we should all come together. Denominations, non-denominations, atheists, agnostics, I think we should all come together and study the Bible. Right? And follow the truth. I don't believe that we need to come together and clearly ignore the erroneous teachings that lead people away from God and away from the Bible and assume that unity is worth more than truth. But that's what the Bible says is going to happen. And that's what's happening right before our eyes. Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 says, He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, we've talked a lot about the fact that Revelation is not literal, but it's spiritual, right? But let me just say this to you. I would not be surprised at all if the devil himself would pretend to be Jesus Christ and call down fire from heaven. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he would do that. Because imagine what would happen if he did. The whole world would be flocking to Him, wouldn't they? But I believe that this may be talking spiritually. Because remember, what is symbolized by fire in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. That's right. The day of Pentecost. There were tons of fire, right? And so I believe that the deceptions in this last day are going to appear very religious. They will appear... And there will be great revivals. And those revivals, though, are going to be based on emotion. They're going to be based on false understanding of healing and miracles. And I believe that the devil can and he will work miracles. And I believe that there are going to be all kinds of false miracles in the end. And so just because you see a miracle, it doesn't mean that God is behind it. Here's what I'm telling you, friends. In these last days... You cannot trust what you hear or what you see. The only thing that you can trust is the Word of God. Base your faith on the Word of God and what you know to be true in the Word of God. Because the deceptions are going to be visible, they're going to be audible, and they are going to be experiential. And I believe that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be swept up in a movement that is not based on the Bible, but is based on feelings and entertainment. And there are going to be false revivals at the end of time in Protestant America. It's going to prepare people for the deceptions. And they have no idea of this because they are not basing their faith on the Word of God. It's based on their experience. Revelation 13, verse 14 says, And He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which He was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Here's a guy by the name of Father Stefano Gobi. He claims to have direct communications with Mary. And after some direct communication, this is what he said, A chastisement worse than the flood is about to come upon this poor and perverted humanity. Fire will descend from heaven, and this will be the what? The sign 
that the justice of God has as of now fixed the hour of His great manifestation. Whose great manifestation? He says God's. But what does the Bible say? It says that's going to come from that false prophet, right? Who is given power by the dragon, right? And yet there are going to be people that this is so foreign to them that what they hear, they're going to just believe it, right? And it's going to lead them right where the devil wants them to be. The Bible says that the deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Let me tell you something. That deadly wound has been healed. And this Pope is gaining in political power even at this very moment. And it's not religious benefits that people are looking for. They're looking for the political benefit as well. Here is a picture of a quote from USA Today, April 7, 2005, at Pope John Paul's funeral. President Bush, his wife Laura, his father, former President George Bush, former President Bill Clinton, and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice knelt in a pew in front of the body, bowing their heads. Now friends, I don't know whether they were personal friends with the Pope or how they became personal friends. But I think I have an idea. It goes on to say, five kings, four queens, and at least 70 presidents and prime ministers attended Pope John Paul's funeral. More than 100 nations were represented. Prince Charles of Great Britain postponed his wedding to attend. This was the first time in U.S. history that a sitting president ever attended a papal funeral. Some analysts consider it the largest gathering ever of world leaders. Friends, times are changing. And let me tell you something. 57 years ago, this nation had a Catholic president. You remember who that was? That's right, John F. Kennedy. And there was a lot of pressure because he was Catholic and because this is a Protestant nation. And there were many people that were pressuring him because they were questioning whether or not JFK would take his marching orders from the Pope. And so it was a real issue in that campaign, and he needed to address the American people. And so I'd like to show you something that he said in a speech at the Houston Ministerial Association at the Rice Hotel on September 12, 1960. He said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Wow! That was our Catholic president 
Right? I think that's very powerful. But let me tell you something. This is a Christian nation. And I believe that we have to allow every person to believe according to their own conscience. There has to be a separation of church and state. And John F. Kennedy may have had political reasons for saying what he said. And it certainly was an issue in that campaign. But I'd like you to notice the striking difference of what has happened just in the last 20 years. In 1960, John Kennedy went from Washington down to Texas to assure Protestant preachers that he would not obey the Pope. In 2001, George Bush came from Texas up to Washington to assure a group of Catholic bishops that he would. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't know, Pastor. That's a big leap to say that America would start legislating beliefs just like they did in Rome. But I think we are seeing clear signs. Not only that this has begun to be set up, but also how it could happen. I mentioned September 11, 2001. And you'll remember that right after those planes hit those towers, that the American people were willing to give up their rights so that they could feel protected. They were willing to surrender liberty when it was in their own interest. And you know that there are people today in this country who are being held who have never had a trial. Right? All because they have been labeled terrorists. Because the government passed a bill that says because they are classified as terrorists that they can be held without a trial and they can even be tortured. Now that sounds fine and good because they're terrorists, right? But what happens when the definition of a terrorist changes? And I believe that we are living in a time when that definition is going to change. When you are the one who is standing in the way of progress, when the whole world is being told what they have to believe and you don't agree with that, you're going to be a terrorist. Friends, immorality in this country is on the rise. It is going to get to a place where there is going to be a backlash and the American people are going to be calling for the government to do something about it. There's going to be a grassroots movement. And I don't think it would take long to come about either. Because all we need is another event like September 11th to happen. That's all it's going to take. And then there are going to be people that say, this is happening because we're no longer a Protestant nation. This is happening because we've turned our backs on God. And we have got to get back to God. And there is going to be a push for a political agenda in this country. This is a Christian nation. And there's going to come a time when you and I are going to have to make a decision. There is a time that is outlined in Revelation 13 in this very passage of speaking of the mark of the beast. And it says that we are going to have to make a decision. Because if you go by the Word of God, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. And every one of us is going to have to make that decision. 
Are we going to be true to our conscience? Are we going to be like Huss and Jerome and Luther and Wycliffe and the reformers of old who died for the Word of God? Or are we going to succumb to the state? I believe that we're coming to a time when we are going to have to make that decision. And I, I hope, please, don't take this message the wrong way. I love this country. I spent 23 years of my life serving in the military, defending the freedoms that we jealously guard. This country is based on the very thing that I believe that God was looking for when He brought those pilgrims to America. They fled persecution. And you look at other countries around the world and there are very few that do not have a state-sponsored religion. America is a very special place. But the Bible says that history is going to repeat itself. And for as much as we fight for religious liberty and freedom, there's coming a time when we're going to have to choose whether we're going to follow God and the commandments of God or whether we're going to follow man and the commandments of men. When God is enforced in this country, it is not going to be the God that we're all hoping for. This nation is going to tear down the separation of church and state and a certain brand of religion is going to be enforced. But I don't believe that it's going to be God's brand of religion. And we're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to serve God? Or are we going to serve man? And I like the way Joshua said it. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. My wife and I have already made that decision. We are going to stay with God. We're going to follow the commandments of God rather than the commandments of men. And I want to ask you tonight, friends, have you seen from the Scriptures? Have you seen for yourself? I'm either picking on the Catholics or I'm pointing out to you clearly what Scripture says that the United States of America and the papacy are already doing. The Lamb is beginning to speak like a dragon. And you're going to have to choose which side you're going to be on. You see, friends, the papacy doesn't change. It still has the same principles that it has always had. The difference is that we are living in a time of political correctness. And so everybody's just playing nice, right? But if you really take a hard look, you can see what's happening right now. I'm going to share something with you. And just take this as something I'm saying, not gospel. But I was just talking to a pastor just a couple of days ago. Just within the last seven days. And he told me that he had a document in his hand. He was preparing a sermon for the 500-year Reformation. And it's a pastor that I greatly respect. And he said to me that in this document, the Protestants are saying that the Bible and tradition are equal. It's happening right now. And so my question to you is, where are you going to place your faith? Are you going to stand for Jesus in the truth while you can now? Or are you going to wait till it comes a time when you're forced to make a decision? I hope that you'll make that decision now. Because if you do, 
when that decision is forced, you will have already made it. You will already be prepared for it. And you will be able to go through those things that are coming on this world. Are you willing to stand for the truth now? Are you willing to stand for Jesus? Make that stand now. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, You see everyone standing. You know our heart. Lord, we want to avoid the deceptions that are happening right now underneath our eyes. They're happening right in front of us. And Lord, we thank You so much for bringing us here. I don't think that anyone is here by accident. But Lord, we have had a divine appointment. And over this last couple of weeks, Lord, this has been holy ground. And I believe that Your angels have been all around us. And that we are all here for a reason. You have called us here. You are preparing us to take a stand for You. And Lord, You see everyone standing. You know the desires of our heart. And Lord, we want to be ready. So when that is enforced, we've already made that decision. Lord, we pray that You would give us the strength to stand. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.